first picture on the screen for you, these are Navajo prayer feathers. A painted feather has a leather thong tied on it. And what the Navajos will do with this is they, they make the prayer feather and then they will get in whatever spiritual state they need to get in, and then they will wave that feather back and forth in front of their mouth like this as they, as they pray, as they speak, and they're putting the prayer into the feather, and they're waving their prayer in the feather, and then once the prayer is in the feather, they will take it out into the desert somewhere and tie it onto a sagebrush or a scrubby bush of some sort and let it blow in the wind, and the wind, they believe, blows their prayer off to their gods. They're not praying to the God and Father of Jesus Christ. They're praying to their tribal spirits. And they'll tie these on the bushes. And, and then as people drive through Navajo tribal land, they might see one tied on a bush. And, and these tourist souvenir hunters will go out like, ooh, that's a prayer feather. And they will go and take it as a souvenir. And then a month later, it shows up in an envelope in the tribal office. Please, please forgive me for stealing the feather. Please, all hell has broken loose in my life. Since I stole that, that feather, please, please take it back and forgive my sins against your tribe. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. They stole it, and then really bad stuff happens. There's power in the feather because they speak to their God over the feather. More examples, and I'll tie this together as we go. Next picture. you got to be really old to know who this guy is. Anybody recognize him? A couple of you. Okay, you ex-hippies are willing to admit that you listen to godless music. Okay, but this is the Grateful Dead. This is Mickey Hart. He's one of their two drummers. He is also a student of witchcraft and the occult and magic and uh, occultic supernatural power. And he wrote a book called Drumming on the Edge of Magic where um, he studied the way drums are used in tribal rituals and in trances and how drums in history and across culture are, are used to, to contact spirits and so on. And I don't recommend the book. I haven't read it myself. I'm just telling you this guy is is an intentional student of the dark arts. Um, a drum collector of drums from all over the world, and a friend of his knew that he collected drums from all over the world, and this friend is on a trip in Bhutan, which is on the border of Tibet and India. It's next to Nepal, up in the Himalayas, where everybody's a Buddhist. And in the marketplace in town, the, Mickey's friend finds this drum. This drum is made from the tops of two human skulls, and it's, the drum skin is human skin. And then it's got these, the balls that swing on string, and you put that drum on a, on a wooden shaft, and you spin it like this in your hands, and as you spin it back and forth, those, those balls whip around and they beat the drum. And the Tibetan Buddhist monks will put themselves into a trance with this drum as they sit in the monastery and they spin the drum and they speak their, their prayer over the drum as they spin it. And it's just boom, 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 boom. And for hours they will just spin this drum and, and go into a demonic trance where they're contacting their gods and they're not gods, they're demons. 
But this drum was for sale in, in the marketplace. How it got from the monastery to the market, I don't know, but Mickey, Mickey's heart's friend is like, hey, Mickey would love this drum because he collects drums and he's a student of occult and witchcraft stuff. And, and so he buys it for him and he gives it to Mickey and a week or two later he gets Mickey's done on whatever tour they're on and he gets home and, and, and so he's a student of this stuff. He wants to know about it so he begins to play it. And he said, five minutes in, I began to get dizzy. Ten minutes in, I began to get nauseous. Then I'm vomiting. Then the room I'm in is not the room I'm in. And um, he said, I, I couldn't play it for more than half an hour. Uh, I thought I was going to die. The Buddhist monks play it for days at a time. So he put it up on a shelf. He's like, mm, we'll leave that there for now. And a month from then, he's, he, he said, all hell broke loose in my life. Everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. And I'm thinking, what is going on? He's like, this all started when I, got, when I played that drum. And, he, and so he's like, i got to get rid of that thing. So he gives it to the other drummer in the Grateful Dead. What a great friend. What a great friend. I don't know that man's name, but he passes it on to his drummer buddy in the band and gives it to him. And two weeks later, that guy says, that drum you gave me, I want it out of my house now. He said, there, it is evil. There is really bad stuff on that drum. We've got to get rid of it. So they found out that a, a Tibetan Lama was coming to San Francisco to um, dedicate a new Buddhist temple there. There, and we'll give it to him. So the two of them took the drum they, they go to this dedication and they, and they get an audience with this Tibetan Buddhist Lama and they give him the drum and, and, he, and he puts it out and he takes it in his hands and he speaks to it and he says, I'm so glad you've come home. And then he looks up and he says, I hope you didn't play this. He said, it raises the dead, you know. Next picture, next story. What you're looking at here is the album cover from the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. There's Beatles in the middle there in their Navy uniforms. And then surrounded by all these famous people. There's Marlon Brando and W.C. Fields and Marilyn Monroe and a bunch of different famous people. And the Beatles say that these faces on this album cover are their most admired people. So most of them are well-known celebrities or whatever, but you probably can't see it from where you're sitting. But second one in from the top left is a man named Aleister Crowley who lived in England in the 1800s. The newspapers of the day defined him as the most, the wickedest man alive. Um, he was interested in witchcraft, occult power, spells, chants, seances. He, he wanted to be able to be so powerful in witchcraft that he could raise the devil. He looked to court and changed his name. His legal name was 666. Uh, I mean, this guys he's a really bad dude. He bought a house in Scotland that was quite rural, a manor-type house that was alone, and he said, I dedicate this house to the practice of the black arts. He said, I bought it because it was rural, because I wouldn't be bothering my neighbors, and he spent the last decades of his life there trying to practice magic and chants and spells and seances and so on, and, and he died, and skip forward after his death, next picture, probably old if you know these guys too. Um, it's Robert Plant and Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. He is also a student of the dark arts, the cult, witchcraft, demonic stuff. He's into all that, loves it. So he says to himself, it would be really awesome to own Aleister Crowley's house. So Jimmy Page is like, I'm going to buy that house. That'd be really cool. He collects all this kind of stuff. I'll just collect a house. 
So he bought the house. I don't know if the property was for sale or just offered enough money that they sold or whatever, but nobody had lived there since Alistair Crowley. Um, nobody would live in the house for obvious reasons. But he bought the property. Jimmy Page in the 70s went there, spent one night, and would never go back. He didn't say too much about what he saw or experienced or felt or whatever. He just, years after Alistair Crowley had spoken his chants and his spells and all that, there's still a presence, there's still power, there's still evil in the house, in the house. So we have a feather, we have a drum, we have a house, objects that are inhabited by demonic powers. Hello? You with me? Next one is a picture of a Native American medicine bag, any tribal culture in the whole world, their shaman, their witch doctor is going to have something that he wears that is the source of his power. It's usually going to be something like a medicine bag. It might be called a fetish or a talisman, but it's his connection to the spirit world and the medicine bag. They will put objects like a pebble or a bead or a feather, something that was present when they had some sort of encounter with the spirit world, and, and it's the source of their power, and, and, and they, they can't do any magic. They can't heal people or, or do their power things if they, don't, if they don't have the medicine bag on. Sometimes they'll take it off and lay it on the body of the sick person who's come, and they've paid their goat or their chicken to, like, well, I need you to heal my grandma, and, and they'll, they'll take the medicine bag off and lay it on the body, and, and sometimes there's actual miracles. They're they're counterfeit, but they're, but they're real. I mean, they're, they will not part from their medicine bag. There's countless missionary stories from all over the world that when Christians come into unreached tribe, that usually it's the shaman or the, med, uh, the medicine man who is the most resistant to the gospel, to the, to the Christian, and, and the stuff that happens to those missionaries or church planters or whatever it, sometimes it's brutal. It's really, really rough because witch doctors have real power. And there'll be strange sicknesses or just battle in the spirit back and forth. But what is also universal is that if a shaman or a witch doctor gets born again, if they say yes to Jesus, it is universal. The first thing they know they have to do is burn their medicine bag. They have to take off their talisman or their fetish to part themselves from the power that is in that thing that they wear that's their connection to the spirit world. Uh, Sarah's cousin that's missionaries in Africa for 30-some years and a uh, long time in, in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam, which is officially a Muslim country, but African Muslims are very different from Middle Eastern Muslims in that African Muslims use a lot of witchcraft. And she talked about once years ago to us that they had to have 24-7 prayer at their church in order to just be able to function because of the amount of curses and witchcraft against them coming from the mosque down the street against their church. Anyway, she said one night, at least once, and I think more than once, um, they're in prayer, in their prayer meeting, and somebody gets a word of knowledge that go outside the building, on this corner of the building, lift up this rock, and they went and they did it, and there was a thing under the rock. It was this fetish thing that the witch doctor had pronounced a curse on it and then buried it on their property, and it was working against the church. And Jesus exposed that, but it had power. Hello. A few of you, a few of you believe. The power in these things is real. It isn't superstition. It's, it's wicked. And all of them... From Ouija board 
to a crystal, to a Navajo prayer feather, to Aleister Crowley's house, what are people doing with them? They're talking to these objects. Right? You speak to the Ouija board. You ask it, or the eight ball, and you ask it questions. Hello? Come on, the crystal. You're supposed to speak to it, and it'll speak. I put that in quotes, but it'll speak to you or whatever. And they pray to the totem pole or the idol, and um, they chant their prayers to the, to the drum or to the, the feather. As these things are created... Words are spoken over them, and they're dedicated to the spirits. Come on, you should recognize the word dedicated. Come on. Come on, what's that word? They're holy. This object is now set apart, dedicated, set over here for the exclusive use of this spirit. And when the words are said and the dedication is made, the spirit's power is in the thing. So my point is that this d demonic power, demonic spiritual power, can inhabit a thing. If that thing, the prayer feather or the drum or the building or the medicine bag, has the right words spoken over it and it is dedicated for the exclusive use of that spirit. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. It's filled with the spirit's power. Because of the words. And some of you, I can see the look on your face now. You're just like, it's, this is all just superstition. These things just happen because they believe that they will happen. Well, the souvenir hunters in the desert who stole the prayer feather didn't believe. And they became believers. I know that Mickey Hart, you know, believed in the occultic stuff. And Jimmy Page believed in the occultic stuff. So you could say, well, he spooked himself out staying in Aleister Crowley's house. Okay, fine. I don't agree with you, but I'll give you that. But, but when, when, they, when they want the stuff and it spooks them out or they steal the stuff thinking, I'm not doing anybody any harm, and then they're like, please, please, please forgive me. I need this, I need this thing out of my life. That's belief because it's real. And I would also ask you, how in the world can you say you believe in the Bible if you don't believe in spiritual power? If you don't believe in dark kingdom as well as a kingdom of light, you, you are, by definition, an unbeliever. You, you don't believe the Bible. It's clear, because this stuff is in the Bible. Spiritual power being in a stuff. Moses had a stick. Come on. Moses had a stick that turned into a snake twice. Once that snake ate other snakes, and when he picked it up by the tail, it became a stick again. There was power in a stick. Come on, when he touched the Nile River with it, it, the water turned to blood. And when they're at the Red Sea, and all the people are crying out to Moses, we're going to kill you because you've trapped us between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And Moses goes to God and he says, God, save us! And what's God's reply? What are you hollering at me for? Use what's in your hand. God told him, don't pray to me. Use your stick. It's the only time God ever told anybody, don't pray. He says, you've already got it. It's in your hand. You have a magic stick. Use it. And he did. He held the stick out over the water and the water parted. Come on. 
Two times in the desert in the next 40 years, he hit a solid rock with that stick and it cracked and water came out. Even when the second time, Moses was disobeying God. God told him to do the miracle a different way. There was so much power in the stick that it worked. Aaron had a staff too. And they stuck it in the ground and overnight it grew branches and leaves and flowers and almonds. Like it was a live tree. They had two rocks called the Urim, Urim and the Thummim. Urim and the Thummim, depending on how you want to pronounce it. These two rocks, they mean light and perfection. Very little is understood about them, but God told them these two rocks have power in them. He says, when you have a question from me, ask the rock and it will light up and answer you. And the Urim, the name of the stone means light. And so what we think happened is that they would go in and they would just like asking an eight ball a question, except that an eight ball ain't God. You go in and you ask the Urim what my will is and it will answer you. And then when Aaron had his priestly costume made up with his hat and his robe and his apron, all the stuff where he would have to go into the Holy of Holies. There was what was called the ephod and the breastplate. There was a metal gold breastplate, a square hanging on a chain on his neck with 12 stones, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. But right in the middle of those 12 is two more stones, the Urim and the Thummim. And so there was 14 stones on his breastplate that he had to wear into the presence of God to, to offer the blood of the Lamb on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. And God, God says, whenever you need to know my will, ask the breastplate. And we don't really know what that means, but God told Joshua to do it, and Saul tried it, and God wouldn't answer him. Nothing happened. Rocks that had spirit power, a connection to a spirit, the Holy Spirit. Not an unholy spirit like the rest of my examples, but stones that God said they have my power in them ask them Elijah had his prayer shawl his mantle this thing that they'd wear over their head that went over their shoulders and and when it fell off of him when he went up into the sky in the tornado with the chariots of fire and all that and Elisha caught it he spins it up like a towel and whips the Jordan River and the water parts there's a piece of fabric Elisha had a staff also. Again, a stick. The Shunammite woman sends a messenger that her son has had a heat stroke while he was out harvesting with his dad and he's dying. And Elisha gives his staff to his servant Gehazi and he says, go and lay this stick on his body and he'll, he'll be healed. And actually he wasn't. Elisha himself had to come and stretch out and lay on the boy's body. But there, Elisha knew there was so much power in his staff he thought that would raise him from the dead. Come on, you bunch of unbelievers. <laughs> Believe. It's real. It's biblical. The Ark of the Covenant itself, the gold box, rolled back the waters of the Jordan River. When the Philistines stole it, they are like, Woohoo, we stole Israel's God. And they all got bloody hemorrhoids overnight. And their land was overrun with rats. 
a plague of rats that covered the ground so much they're like, whoa, wait a minute. And then they brought it into the temple of their god Dagon who was, uh, had human legs but it was a fish from the waist up and Dagon fell down in front of the Ark of the Covenant which is the position of worship. He fell on his face. And he was worshiping the Ark of the Covenant and they're like, whoa, wait a minute, Dagon fell. And they put him back up and the next morning they come in and Dagon's on his face again before Yahweh God, before the Ark of the Covenant. And, the, and they put him up and the third time Dagon fells and he breaks in half. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute, all this terrible stuff started happening when we stole this gold box. Well, we're not exactly sure if this is all just coincidence, or is this Israel's God? So we're going to get a wagon, and we're going to hitch a cow to it that just had a calf like a couple days ago. If you know anything about mother animals, they, they, they will not leave their babies. Mammals um, will not leave their babies. And um, So the test was, we're going to hitch this cow... We're going to tie the calf to a post right next to it. And every, every, every cow would stay right there with its calf. But he said, if, if the cow takes off and leaves its calf, which is impossible, it will never happen, and it's pulling the cart with the Ark of the Covenant and it, and it goes toward Israel, then we'll know that Israel's God is, is real. And, and, and sure enough, the cow just takes off in the direction of Jerusalem. No one leading it, no one telling it where to go. It takes the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and the Philistines are like, please, Israel's God, forgive us. And the plague of rats is gone. I don't know if they got healed of the bloody hemorrhoids or not. <laughs> I don't know. But it was because there was power in the box, because it was the mercy seat where God lived. So when they took it out of the temple and the Shekinah glory wasn't there anymore, it wasn't on top of the box, but the box was so inhabited by the power of God that it carried the power of God with it when they stole it. And then that cow took the Ark of the Covenant in a wagon back as far as somebody's house. And then David and his men are going to celebrate and they're going to bring it back into Jerusalem. And that's where the, the ox cart stumbles a little bit and Uzzah reaches out to, to steady it so that the ark doesn't hit the ground and he dies instantly, touching the ark. God didn't strike him dead. The box killed him. There was so much power in it, it was like electricity. It killed his body because he couldn't physically stand touching the box. Well, all those are Old Testament examples are there any New Testament examples? Well, Jesus' shirt healed somebody once. Hello. Jesus didn't pray. He didn't say anything. He didn't say, your faith has healed you. I mean, later he does. But when she's healed, it's because she touched his shirt. Paul would pray over bandanas and mail them. And when the people opened their mail, they got healed. Not when Paul prayed. Like, can I pray for somebody on the other side of the world? Absolutely. But that's not my point. My point is, Paul prayed over the bandana. And when they touched the bandana, they were healed. Come on, it's in the book of Acts, if you're not aware of this. And Peter's shadow healed people. They said that Peter every morning would, at a, at a certain time, would walk up the hill to the temple, and, and the people who were sick 
or had a sick family member, they would lay them in the street where they knew Peter was going to go. They said, hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them because people got healed as Peter walked by. I don't believe that it's Peter's physical light shadow. It's just the proximity to him. Because, let's make this an official sermon, Scripture. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? You are full of the Holy Spirit. You are a box full of the power of God. If indeed you know Jesus Christ. If you are truly born again. You have been sealed with the blood of the Lamb. Just like the houses that the blood of the Lamb kept away death. You have been anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit. You are forever dedicated to God. Filled with His Spirit and His power. Words have been spoken over you. Hello? Word has been spoken into you. The Word has moved into you. And you are holy. You are dedicated to Him You are set aside for his holy purposes, which means the power of that God's spirit is forever in your body. You are Jesus' medicine bag. Jesus is like, I'm going to take you and I'm going to have you lay your hands on that person and the power that is in your body is going to come out and heal them. It doesn't matter how long ago it was that you got born again or baptized in the Holy Spirit. It may have been a hundred years ago you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're still full of it. You are holy. You are, you are dedicated. You are full of the power of God. Next scripture. 1 Corinthians 4.20 For the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. Where is the kingdom of God? At hand. Come on. It's coming out your mouth, and it's not words, it's power. Next one. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure from God, but we, our bodies, are like clay jars. Okay, jars of clay or clay jars or earthen vessels, lots of different ways of translation. That's a poetic reference to our, our body, that God made us out of mud. We're made out of dirt. We're the clay, and our body is an, a clay jar Full of treasure. What is the treasure? That the clay jar holds the treasure. This shows that the great power is from God and not from us. Your body is an empty clay jar full of the glory and power of God. I'm so happy some of you are with me. That's great. Come on. You are a jar full of God. And yes, that means holiness, it means the word of God, it means obedience, it means morality, and all that, but it also means power. Ephesians 3.19, I am praying that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says he's praying that for us, and it isn't Paul speaking, it's God. God. Come on, Jesus is in heaven, says, Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is praying for you. 24-7, Jesus is praying for you. What is he praying? Fill him up, God. Fill him up. The fullness of God. Let him know everything about you and have all that you are. Acts 2-4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Every believer, every Christian, filled with the Holy Spirit. Next one. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Uh, we have to preach the gospel, we have to preach salvation and repentance from sin, but it's got to be accompanied by miraculous power, or it's pointless. Jesus said, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe what I do. Jesus himself said, the miracles alone should testify to you. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human power, human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our faith is not to be in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Paul came with the power of God. Paul came with the power of God. Next one. Acts 8, 18 and 19, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, the story goes on to say Peter rebukes Simon for this. How dare you offer to buy the Holy Spirit with money? But my point is that Simon saw, he saw something happen when the apostles touched people. Because the apostles' body is full of the Holy Spirit. They weren't just praying, wishing prayers. I walk around with the Holy Spirit of God inside of me, and when I touch you, things happen. Oh, now, now see, now we're only gotten three amens on that one. I am full of the Holy Spirit of God, and when I touch you, things happen. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We're supposed to go to the end of the earth with this power, folks. We're going to start right here in this room. We're going to start right here. Why, when you pray, do things not happen? Because I know some of you have tried believing this before. Some of you have seen a little bit, but not very much. That's most of us. Number one, it's unbelief. It's, well, this stuff is ancient world superstition, or it's primitive belief, and you're, you're just not sure that you believe any of it. If, if unbelief is your problem this morning, I, I hope I have convinced you. But if, if I have not, you will be convinced when you see the power of God. When you encounter him in a real way that's miraculous some of you don't see results when you pray like what i'm talking about because of unholiness because holiness is the key the object must be dedicated to the god and only for that spirit's purposes unholy stuff affects unholy supernatural power when you're dedicated in holiness to Yahweh God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you must be holy or it will not work. You cannot be common. You cannot be every day. You must be set aside and dedicated. Go on SoundCloud and listen to that from a couple months ago. But 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, God says, if you come out of the world, I will come to you and be your God and I will live with you. But you must separate yourself from the rest of the world. That doesn't mean we don't have friends or we're unfriendly with our neighbors and coworkers. It means I don't live like them. I don't watch what they watch. I don't listen to what they listen to. 
I don't think like they think. I don't spend my time and my money the way they spend their time and their money. You are completely given over to the purposes of God. So are you actually holy? Are you clean? Do you fear God? We perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. If you have unconfessed or unrepented sin, you need to get it right. If, if you're not holy in your schedule and your money, you need to get it right. Another major block to the power of the Holy Spirit, even though you're born again and, and, and Jesus lives in you, a major block to seeing real powerful answers to your prayer is unforgiveness. If you are not actually one with all of God's people and all of your family, it won't work. You must forgive whoever it is in real forgiveness. You've heard me preach on that lots of times. Forgiveness is a decision. We say it and we mean it. And it may be years of working through the emotions and the counseling and the trauma and all of that. But I decide, yes, I forgive. I have goodwill toward that person. And I genuinely ask God to forgive them for what they did to me. If you have not gotten to that point, you haven't forgiven yet. If you have not honestly prayed, God, erase that from the record of their life. I don't want it brought up on judgment day. I give it away. Erase it, Jesus. That's forgiveness. It doesn't have anything to do with emotion and trauma and pain and counseling and all that stuff. That, that may be, I, I, the healing process may be a long time, but you can just decide in a moment, I choose to forgive. If you haven't honestly chosen forgiveness, it will block the power of God in your life. So what we're going to do is we're going to divide up into groups of five or seven or whatever.